Hi, and welcome to what might be one of your favorite podcast episodes that we've done in some time. Jason Graven is going to be along shortly from Task Force 20, and I need to tell you what that is. I don't know if you read the text, the details that I put in for these episodes, but I need to tell you what Task Force 20 is, at least briefly, because Jason and I don't really get to it until about uh, eight or ten minutes into the conversation. Task Force 20 is an organization that helps veterans process trauma, depression, and all the other mental health stuff we talk about through fitness. Um, I came across Jason at Nikki Licata's Run for Life uh, race a couple of weeks ago at Dana. Um, there was a monument, and I will I think I might still have pictures on my phone. There was a monument, a memorial with the number 20. It was mirrored and some pictures of lives that were lost. It was in addition to the to the uh, to the event this year. And listening to Jason speak, there are certain people in the way that they talk about mental health with the authenticity, the rawness, no matter how upsetting that may be, those people um, I really connect with and uh, just spent a very long time, about 50 minutes or so, chatting with Jason. The first 20 minutes um, will be pretty informational, standard stuff, because that's going to be in our community affairs show contact that I host Sunday mornings. Um, The next 30 minutes, I wanted to dive into other things. What percentage of the time was Jason, when he was in uh, across across the sea um, in Asia, what percent was he in an active conflict? When was he engaged with the enemy? What did he do the rest of the day? What was it like coming home? Did he feel misled about going over there? He enlisted right after 9-11. Um, a lot of raw questions, and I will be honest and say, this is as deep as I've ever had the opportunity, the pleasure, uh, the honor uh, to speak with somebody who is a, a veteran in, in the places and done the things that he has done. And especially now I can't applaud him enough because he's gotten to a place where I, I actually, I envy him. I envy him and how he is, has gotten through his life and the spot he is in in his life, especially for the very last question I will ask him. I have a little bit of wanderlust and I will spare you Taylor Swift and Toledo food truck things. We'll get to that at another time. Jason Graven from Task Force 20. Jason Graven, uh, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk from Task Force 20. Before I ask you to describe what that is, can you, and I know that this is this is not, uh, this is just audio, can you run through the monologue, the talk, the speech you did describing the monument at Nikki's Run for Life Walk? Because it really blew me away. Okay. Yeah, I'll try and remember because I, I went off the cuff on that entire thing. I didn't know she was going to have me speak. Well, me just, I'll start you off. There's the number 20 there, yep. but it's a mirror. Yes. Uh, so we the, the memorial itself had been in the works for over a year, and our board is made up of representatives from each branch of the military along with a Gold Star spouse. Uh, gold Star meaning that their spouse died in combat. And there were several renditions and, you know, our board, we got together and we wanted to do something different that hadn't been done before. And there's all these monuments and these recognitions for the different wars and those who have lost their lives, you know, for their country in battle. But, you know, we talk about the veteran suicide epidemic, but there really wasn't anything out there that recognizes those individuals who may not have died in battle 
but lost their internal battles due to the battles that they were in. Did you say something that morning uh, along the lines of, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, that if it was somebody else, I um, they didn't die in battle or they didn't die in the military. They died because of it or from it. Some, yeah. some semantics like that. I believe I said they didn't die in war, but they died because of it. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah, we recognize that there really wasn't anything out there for them, that it really has been kind of a dog whistle for a lot of organizations and a lot of causes. So we wanted to do something that was going to recognize those individuals as well. And we felt they deserved the same respect. And, you know, we've had several veterans, unfortunately, close to our organization that have um, taken their own lives as well. So... Our memorial was intended to be a traveling memorial, so other organizations and companies and entities can, you know, request the memorial to be at their veteran-specific events. And we have two giant numbers. So, actually, let me back up. I'll, sure. I'll tell you how it, like, kind of unfolded. So, uh, last, we do an annual 5K every year, and uh, two 5Ks ago, we paid to have the Veterans and Athletes United Memorial at our race. And it was a, a really big hit. It's a giant American flag with uh, custom dog tags of all the service members that died in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were talking, like, how do we top that? You know, like, what what is going to be our draw for the next year? And you know, we had discussed, do we bring the same memorial back? Do we look at other memorials? And then it just hit one of us at, well, why are we paying to bring in other people's memorials? Why don't we just do something ourselves? Yeah. And the original idea was, you know, the most recent VA veteran suicide report shows that 30,177 service members have, you know, lost their internal battles and taken their own lives between 2001 and 2020. Do, the, do you offhand know the number of uh, lives lost in actual battle? Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't have the exact number, but I believe it's around 7,100. So three times more suicides. Four, four times. times. Yeah. And um, that's kind of staggering. And the VA uh, veteran suicide report is where the you know 22 per day originally came from back in 2013. The most recent one that's been issued is 2022, and it's down to 16.8. So positive uh, things have been happening, but it's still entirely too high. Yeah. And during that time, it's 30,177. So, you know, we had originally talked, do we put 30,000 flags, you know, out in the, uh, the grassy area where we run our 5K? That's a huge cost, huge labor commitment and stuff like that. And, you know, then we, we came up with the idea for the mirrors. All right. And... It was originally going to be that 30177 number with the mirrors, but the number changes every single year, and sure. each mirror costs us over $1,000. <laughs> so if we're still a small organization, so we're looking at that cost. And, you know, our, our organization is Task Force 20. That number comes from the 2016 VA suicide report that estimated 20 veterans per day. Um so, and we, we felt the number 20 had more of an association with our organization. So we went with that. And the mirrors are, the meaning behind them is twofold. Uh, one is 
you know, we want individuals to look at the mirrors and kind of reflect, you know, the symbolism there that reflect upon themselves and what they as an individual are doing to help in the veteran suicide epidemic. The other intent behind the mirrors is to um, show that on the outside, every single one of those 30,177 individuals looked exactly like you and me. Yeah. And, you know, you you see the celebrities like Robin Williams. Nobody knew the internal struggles that they were going through. So we wanted to kind of show that symbolism as well. Like when you're looking at this mirror, think about your own internal struggles that nobody else knows about that you're just not going to know if these veterans are struggling. And that that could be anybody. It's applicable right. to anybody. When you when you said that in the whole mirror thing, like it really struck me. And that happens not as frequently as it used to because I just play in this mental health playground all the time. So seeing those mirrors and the way you described it um, was powerful. And that's why I wanted to thank you and have you for coming in here. Um, can we talk about what we, we jumped way ahead? What is Task Force 20? How, why did it start? So uh, I started in Columbus uh, when I was living down there in 2016. And, you know, I when I moved down there, I moved down there for a job and I didn't know anybody down there. So I didn't have any friends. And at that time I was your stereotypical grumpy vet. You know, I wasn't the most personable person. And so I would, and it was also my first like big boy job. So. Cause going yeah. to war wasn't, wasn't a big boy job, right? <laughs> well, it, so when I use the term big boy job, it's sitting in front of a computer. You're more office type, like, mm-hmm. uh, environment. And so I would sit, I would go to work. I'd sit in front of the computer all day and I didn't know anybody, so when I left work, and the people I, I was working at, one of the legacy organizations, you know, uh, you're you know, known as the VFW and American Legions and AMVETS and all of those. So most of the people I was working with were twice my age. So it wasn't like I was going out, you know, partying on the weekends with right. the boys. Um, so I would go to work, I'd sit in front of the computer, and then I would go home. And back then, you know, I was a heavy smoker. So, you know, I'd either be sitting outside my front door smoking cigarettes or, you know, I'd, you know, have a drink or I'd be sitting there watching TV, a very lethargic and isolated lifestyle. And I think- Uh, The recipe to kill yourself. Exactly. 100%. And uh, one drink would turn into two or three with dinner and- One is never enough. A thousand is never too many. (laughs) Exactly. I have all these damn cliches, but I- like you and something you have on your mission statement on your site, I want to come back to, which is why I read that. I was like, we're going to have a great chat. I'm sorry. Columbus alone, crappy cigarettes, bad beer. And, you know, I I had put on like 30, 40 pounds just in the first few months of working there because it was such an adjustment in lifestyle. And, you know, I recognized in myself that I was not happy where I was. And I had remembered from when I was in service they they would always say when, when you're in it it's ah uh, they you know they don't know what the hell they're talking about kind of thing and you know they would always say well if you're homesick go work out if you're you know angry go work out like it was the the cure all for all negative things in your mindset so I, I had a gym less than a mile away went up to the gym immediately signed up did not give myself an opportunity to talk myself out of it and just really dedicated myself to you know changing the lifestyle that I was living. And within, I'd say, four or five months, the other members started recognizing me coming in. So they would stop and they would talk to me. So, 
you know, I'm making friends. The changes in my body appearance, my confidence level was going up. You know, um, a lot of positive things started happening in my life just from working out. And this is about the time where the 22 per day was becoming the hot topic in the veteran community. So mid 2010s or so? Uh, 2014, 2015. And, you know, so I'm looking at myself and I've got an MBA and I was working for a nonprofit and I'm looking at like my education and my experience. Well, if I'm not going to be the one to step up and do something, who is? And Task Force 20 was born. Um, let me read that uh, that mission statement. And I, again, talking about the mirror that day, it was strong stuff. That's why I'm glad Nikki connected us so soon. But then I, I read this on the website and we'll plug the podcast. Don't worry. Um <laughs> Most have heard about the 20-plus veterans per day who succumb to suicide daily. There seems to be a countless amount of organizations dedicating to raising awareness, and we appreciate their efforts. And this is the part I love. But Task Force 20 isn't concerned with awareness. We are concerned with how we can stop the need for awareness. I remember my very first uh, very first few um, out-of-the-darkness uh, walks for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. If you'd like to come out October 7th at Promenade Park, I say, I, I say to MC the thing, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I want less people to come to this and that's not quite how it works, but um, tongue in cheek, like let's make this, like let's make our causes like the polio walk. Well, there's no polio walk. That's right. right Cause we cured it. And exactly. we're not stupid enough to think we're going to cure suicide, heart disease, all cancers, but we can fight it. So I love the sentiment of, we don't want to raise the awareness. We want this to end. Yeah. In the, the mid 20 teens, it was everywhere the awareness had been raised and was that what you talked about earlier like just uh the dog whistle the platitudes yes. of we support vets right do you really do you just wear the flag like slacktivism or are you really doing something right and yeah i had a one of our board members uh he made a statement once just in conversation that you know awareness has almost become a do nothing word right so you know and there's causes that definitely still need the awareness but in the veteran community most people know the 22 per day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's almost like, hey, I need, you know, I'm going to tell you about the problem, but I need you to give me money so I can go tell somebody else about the problem. But, you know, we're not doing anything to fix the actual problem. We're just talking about it. Right. So, and, you know, our organization, we don't pretend that, you know, everybody is going to completely change their life by lifting weights, you know. Um, but, you know, for some, for us, our, like I said, our board is all veterans of representatives of each branch. We have all at some point in our lives utilized physical fitness to deal with our own issues. And we've all been overseas. Um, you know, what was your background? You were in the army, correct? In, in an MP? Yes, I was a army MP. Uh, I enlisted two weeks after 9-11 and I was actually part of the initial invasion force into Iraq in March of 2000. Thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, thank you for being worth it. So uh, someone someone say otherwise, but thank you. It was a very <laughs> patriotic time. Um, can can I tell me? Give me your your resume quickly, and then I want to ask you a question. Going back to your big boy job, if I could. Okay. Uh, so yeah, my resume. I you know did the time in the army, and when I got out, I immediately I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I wait. And, I meant the res the army resume. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I. Enlisted two weeks after 9-11, fully intending on 
being killing, sent to Afghanistan. Killing bin Laden, right? Yeah. Like, we were all just gung-ho. Uh, my buddy Dave had enlisted right out of high school where I didn't enlist for three years out of high school. I made sure that I took enough time to make some really big mistakes in life, you know. And um, We all have to. But him going in gave me the confidence that I could do it as well. And so enlisted after two weeks, two weeks after 9-11 with the intent to go to Afghanistan, uh, did basic training and you know, AIT or advanced individual training for job training and went to Fort Hood, Texas and, you know, did that for about five months. And we actually knew in like October Mm -hmm. that we were going to be going to Iraq. Were you scared? No. And it's funny. I actually get asked similar questions to that quite a bit, but I'm 43. So I was 10, 11 years old during the first invasion and most gulf of the war. people I, I served with excuse me yes uh the gulf war most of the people i served with were old enough to remember and w- the imagery that had come out from the first gulf war was hundreds and thousands of iraqis like giving up you know white flags walking across the no desert shoes. right and you know that's fully what we expected i remember conversations we were having well we're going to be home in a month and a half two months anyway because that's what happened 10 years prior right um so there really wasn't a fear factor at all going in um you know we didn't expect to be there very long we just happened to be there for eight or nine years and Mm -hmm. we still have people over there which is funny to me as well because we pulled out like four times just in the past five years so you know. Not to get too political or war-driven with this, and I'm going to ask you some of the other personal stuff, at least for the uh, one part of the program. We only have about like 20 so minutes, but you and I can talk podcast-wise all day. Um, it was always going to be a challenge because like, we, we weren't fighting a country. Right. We weren't taking on Zimbabwe. or this was, this was the war on terror, which is scattered everywhere. And I mean, it's why you were there for so long. Well, that, that's kind of the the guys that they you know had us under, but we were fighting the Iraqi military, um, so it wasn't like Afghanistan where they were fighting the Taliban. When we right. went into Iraq, we were fighting the Iraqi military, but we expected the Iraqi military from ten years prior. What we didn't expect was for them to actually put up a fight this time. Mm-hmm. But what we failed to realize ten years prior, we didn't actually invade Iraq. We didn't go in, so. Yeah, it, it just, we all had a very different perception. I don't think there was much fear at all. Because I think in the four days in the first Persian Gulf War, we only lost 500. Now, I say only because comparatively it's much less. That's still 500 American lives lost. But it was such a different war. It, mm-hmm. it was only 10 years apart. Yeah. So. Do, you, do you feel like you were misled at all? And I don't mean to ask that question to plant any seeds or anything, but... At the time, mm-hmm. yes. And one of the things that I personally had to come to grips with and understand for myself is, you know, at the time, why are we here? We're supposed to be in Afghanistan doing that. But make no mistake, Saddam and Saddam's children were terrible, terrible people. And they were doing some really nasty, tyrannical type things to the Iraqi people. So over time, as I've grown and matured, I look back much more favorably upon what I did. Um, but, yeah, in my mid-20s, you know, I may have had different, you know, feelings towards it. Like, yeah, I went there, but what did I go there for? 
now now I have a better understanding. Our brains are shaped better. We're we're about the same age. I'm 44, and I remember watching essentially you um, play out on TV on the news every night. And I was just say, you know, like you just illustrated, you felt a little misled. But you can look back at anything in our 20s. Like we've all taken a job where it's like I was promised overtime and blah. But this obviously right. is a bit more grave. No pun intended with your last name. Let me jump ahead if I can, so I can make sure we I get this on contact. Um, do, and I ask this of all my my veteran friends who come in here. Um, do you feel you were appropriately? We talk a friend of mine who I used to do suicide prevention with. Uh, she was in the Navy, and her thing was: you train the heck out of us to be on that boat. You don't train us real well to go sit at a desk. She right. talked about the time like I'm on a boat keeping you safe, and now I have Earl telling me the eggs are cold. Do you think? <laughs> You were appropriately trained and transitioned. Are we doing a better job of that so 20 doesn't become 21 right. and more? So the the way I frame it, very similarly. You know, the military, depending on the job that you choose when going in, they're going to spend five or six months training you to be a soldier and do whatever job that you choose or, you know, airman, marine, whichever branch you go into. When I got out, I got two days of transition stuff. <laughs> and one of those days was turning all of my equipment in. It was, you know, back then it was pretty much, you know, here's your DD-214, good luck, see you later. What year was this? Uh, I got out in 2005. Okay. Now they actually, because of the awareness that was raised in the mid-2010s about, you know, the suicide uh, epidemic, they focus more on that transition, it's two weeks long now instead of just a couple of days. Is it enough? Probably I, not. I, I think they're trying, but you know the military is. I mean, they they do their job well. Yeah, the transition is not their job can necessarily. I, can I ask you another uh, opinion? Um, and I don't mean to push buttons. I just want real answers. And if you feel uncomfortable, like you're going to like, because you'll say this and then you'll wind up disappearing and task force 20 gets wiped off the earth. <laughs> I get it. Do you feel they're doing a better job out of optics and better press or they're really trying? Maybe a I think, or a I think it depends on the unit. Okay. Um, and you know, every, every unit is different. Like when I was in, I thought the unit I was in was ate up, uh, hearing the stories now and meeting you know other soldiers whether it be national guard reserves or active duty and speaking to them about the things they're going through i was actually in a very squared away unit um you know top notch so it really depends on the unit's leadership and what their goals are Um, but what about that two weeks is the two weeks optics or are they putting real effort in or is that what you mean by it's by the unit and that's what i mean got um you know it like I said, the military is trying to do the best it can, but that's not what they're there for, right? And, you know, they're there to teach individuals how to fight wars to protect American sovereignty. The transition coming home, you know, a lot of us would probably say that is a part of it, but that's newer. So I get it. You know, they do what they do very well. This is something brand new to them, and they're trying to figure it out. And I think there is real effort trying to figure it out. Could it be done better? I think it could. I think that as from the moment you started speaking, so much depth, uh, a lot of eloquence and intelligence, and you said it um, without saying it. Like, 
heck yeah, they've got to try harder because before it was patriotism. Now, a mom, a loved one, like you can deal with somebody dying in battle because it's what we've learned about since we were kids and wars. And But dying because of battle is not something a, a loved one could necessarily deal with. And basically you're killing your workforce too. Like if, right. if you find out that it's 20 a day, like that's your potential workforce. Yeah, There's work shortages at restaurants. There's work shortages in the military and they've got to ensure that people will come home safely and live safely when they're home. If not, people won't enlist. Uh, in... One of the biggest problems with the veteran suicide epidemic or what I think is a leading factor in it, right? We're in a very weird time in history right now where it doesn't matter if you're a Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, or you know a National Guard cook. To the American public, you're a hero, right, because you enlisted – but at the same time, on the other side of that coin, we can't get anybody to enlist because individuals have seen nothing but the the worst of the worst for 20 years and fighting multiple battles and fronts. So, you know, I throw some statistic at you. It was about 14% of the adult male population in World War II served in the military. It dropped to about 7% of just the male population in Vietnam. Iraq and Afghanistan had less than half of 1% of the entire population, both males and females, that went to Iraq and Afghanistan. So when we came back from those battles, there were so few of our peers that had served. That is what led to a lot of the isolation and people don't understand me and there's something wrong with me and because they're just – we didn't know where to find each other because most – they go back to where they're from mm-hmm. and – so not having those other individuals around and not knowing where to look and where to turn, you can be given all the tools in the world in that transition period. That's not going to fight the loneliness that yeah. then leads to depression, that then leads to suicidal ideation. And civilians don't know what they don't know. And, you know, veterans, we have very unique experiences. We need to talk to other veterans. So... Yeah. Um, I want to come back to this, but I want to wrap up at least with the one portion of, of this recording. Um, how can people track down more about Task Force 20, be involved, throw you some money, run, work out if there's veterans that want to get involved? Uh, so we do have a website. It's TF for Task Force, the numbers 20.org. Uh, invite everybody to look at that. We are on social media platforms. Um, you know, so those ways. Instagram. And, what's the podcast? Uh, yeah, we have our own po- podcast. It's All Call with Task Force 20. And we'll have different members of our board. Uh, we'll sit in each month. It's a new episode released the 20th of every month. And we just talk about veteran stuff. We don't get into the politics or you know th- that kind of stuff. But we just talk about veteran-specific things. And I've had civilians tell me that have listened to it that work with the veteran population that they've gotten a lot out of our podcast just hearing how you know us veterans talk to each other and it helps them in their jobs and dealing with veterans and knowing kind of our mindset with a lot of this stuff um we'll jump all on the podcast stuff now could you uh could you share some experiences that maybe you commonly get asked about or you enjoy sharing because of the the lesson nature of it or giving people a real glimpse of what it's like to be where you were 
Do you mean like lessons from the podcast or just oh, in no, no, life? No. Or? Uh, being in the middle of a war. Um, Some things that maybe um, people, lay, lay people see as like, that's right. not how it's really portrayed. And this is what it's really like. And maybe just like your everyday day, like, because there are probably some days when you're over there and the biggest enemy, even though you were like 300 yards from somebody blowing you up, was being bored off your ass. Yes. And, and I'm glad you said that because uh, if you remember in the mid 2000s, there was a huge focus on veteran employment because I think it was yeah. two or three times the national unemployment rate. And you couldn't get people to hire vets to save your life. And a lot of that, you know, we go back to the statistics that I just shared. A lot of that could also be contributed to uh, the movies and the TV shows that were coming out because not that they you know, were trying to push an agenda or they weren't telling stories correctly. They're movies. People mm-hmm. need to enjoy watching them. So they focused more on like Lone Survivor. Uh, you know, it has to be dramatized to right. make it interesting and enjoyable and keep people's attention. We can't watch your unit playing chess for six hours, make a good movie out of it, right? Exactly. <laughs> so you're you're taking, you're showing the the worst possible situations yeah. that a military service member can be in, and if you don't have that introduction to the military through a cousin, brother, you know, parent, whomever. It, it can be reasonably conceived that that is what you are led to believe is day-to-day in the military, where 90% of what I did in Iraq was sit around. sitting around <laughs> smoking cigarettes, telling inspirational stories from my childhood or whatever you know we were talking about. It, I mean, it, it wasn't go, go, go right. um, all day, every day. It was literally, we're doing nothing, we're 100 miles an hour, we're back to doing nothing. I was literally going to ask you, could you put a percentage on when you were actively engaged in 90 and 10? Could you give me another story that maybe you don't tell a lot from over there? And it's maybe simply about making a friend, um, making a a friend out of an enemy or learning a skill that you brought back here. Uh, Well, you know, uh, the first one I'll tell is, you know, talked about you know, the perception that we had going over there. I had actually broken my wrist about a month, month and a half in to our time. And, you know, the entire time we, we were looking at it like, I, I, like, what are we doing here? Because there wasn't a lot of engaging um, because literally the way Saddam had designed everything, he would only put enough troops to slow down, you know, first calf. You know, because we, we basically followed First Cav in from the south, and it would just slow them down. And, you know, so us following them, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, combat, if you will. Um, I had broke my wrist, and I was at a cache, which is a combat army something or other hospital. Um, kind of like MASH. Everybody's familiar with the TV show. Here we are, yeah. But, so, you know, I had to get casted, and uh, I was outside smoking, and I'm, I'm beginning to realize I smoked a lot. <laughs> um, outside smoking a cigarette with one of the nurses, and they rolled out a gurney. And, you know, I just happened to ask, you know, what happened there. And he told me that an eight-year-old Iraqi girl was standing too close to a building mm-hmm. that we bombed. And, you know, she was killed. And that's where the, the light really went on for me. Like, this isn't 1991 or 1990. 
you know, this is a completely different war that we're in and this is no joke. And for me in that moment, that's when I realized it. Um, so, you know, to circle all the way back around to sure. previous. Let me uh, ask another question this way. Uh, my my dad was in the army, didn't see any active conflict. I'll come back to him in a second. Uh, it's just with the ages, your parents or, or dad or grandparents. My grandparent, uh, my grandfather, David, was part of World War II stuff. He was an MP in uh, in the Pacific, not in any conflict or anything. Uh, so my dad joined because he was of that age, late 60s, whatever it was. Didn't go to Vietnam. He told he always used to tell me how much he liked driving the tank. He's like, you go two miles an hour, but this thing that you're in, um, his face would always light up with that. Is there any fun little nuggets like that? Like maybe you learned, even if it's like flying something, dry, like hell, like there's nothing like driving through Afghanistan to it, 80 miles an hour on one of these vehicles. Like just something you can't do here as a civilian. Uh, yeah, I remember driving in a Humvee and we're driving down, we're going on a mission, and we had Black Hawk helicopters, like, flying next to the convoy, and I just remember thinking in the moment, you know, every single Vietnam movie, what do you hear? Like, the the music that plays. Um, I, I can't think of it. Uh, Fortunate Son. Okay. And I remember looking out, thinking to myself, <laughs> like, like if there was an appropriate time that that song could be playing, this would be it right now. Very cool. And, yeah, I still remember that because we didn't have a, a whole lot of missions where we, you know, went out with, you know, air support. But that one, you know, really stood out to me because I remember thinking that, like, this would be the time that that would play. And you're just, like, amped up and right. ready to go. And, yeah. Um, final couple of questions. What is your, you, you have a regular job, big boy job now? Yeah, yeah. I still, still have a big boy job. Uh, I currently... And the assistant director of what's known as Trio Veterans Upward Bound, and I, I'm very blessed. And you know, it's taken me a long time to get here, but you know, I go to work and I get paid to help veterans. And then with Task Force 20, you know, I get to go home and focus on you know helping veterans. So the Trio Veterans Upward Bound program, you know, we assist low-income first-generation veterans with career counseling, career transition assistance, if they want to change careers, uh, how to get into college, how to access different VA educational benefits that they may, you know, be eligible for, get them all set up with all of that and make sure that, you know, they are able to succeed in higher education because me, you know, I'm considered a first generation um, college student. And when I went to school in 2005 to the University of Toledo, I had already failed out of UT. I dropped out of Owens and I just kind of had to figure it out on my own from accessing my new GI Bill benefits that nobody explained to me or how to actually get them. And Google wasn't very good back then. Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's something that, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget is most of us don't go into active duty military service because we've got scholarships to Harvard on the table. You know, most of us weren't all that great in high school. So now you take and you throw in some active duty service, you know, you weren't very good at algebra to begin with, but now you haven't been exposed to it for a number of years. So you then go to college and you're sitting with 18 year olds that three months ago were in these classes so you're already behind the eight ball because you forgot everything you might have learned. And, you know, these students still remember everything. 
So, you know, that tradition uh, transition alone uh, can be extremely difficult. So you're almost augmenting that two weeks that you talked about earlier. In a way, yeah. Uh, one of the things that we try to do is work with the different uh, units and where we can go in and work with their education NCOs and provide the their troops with the necessary information of how to do all of this. Um, What's NCO? I think uh, Amanda from oh, Who's mentioned I'm sorry. that before. Yep. Non-commissioned officer. Okay. So you've got commissioned and non-commissioned. You're non-commissioned or you're enlisted. Um, leadership positions. Uh, most people would know that as a sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, you'll have a NCO uh, basically in charge of like uh, recruitment and retention. They're generally the ones that are dealing with the education benefits. Um, thanks for doing that. If people haven't been able to hear it and what you're talking about, and, and I think you know this, even though you haven't said the word, I I always yell at people, stop trying to be happy. Like <laughs> Happiness and sadness comes and goes. If you find purpose, you'll be able to get up every day, no matter what that is. And with that purpose, there's almost that feeling of happiness. And you certainly have it and found it a variety of different ways in your life. Yeah, I would say, and I'll share another piece that I don't Please. really talk about, is you know I served with a number of individuals that didn't come home from Iraq. And there's a certain level of survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take a look at the movie Saving Private Ryan, there's a scene in that that really stood out to me when I watched it. And that's Besides in, the first one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you see the, the older individual, he wants to go up to a grave, by himself. Oh, I meant the Normandy Beach one. Oh, oh. dear, I can't watch it. But I know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. okay, my apologies for uh, yeah, interrupting. No problem. He, he goes up to the grave site and, you know, has all the, the recollections and the memories and stuff. And, you know, he gets emotional and his wife comes up and he says to her, please tell me that I've lived a good life. That really hit home with me when I saw it because they're, you know, I do struggle a little bit with survivor's guilt. And... You know, so what am I doing? Why why was I the one that got to come home when my friends didn't? And this is what I have found is giving back to the veteran community, taking the lessons that I have learned and learned the hard way most of it because when I got out, you know, being able to ensure that the next generations don't have to go through that as well. Yeah. You know, whether it be Task Force 20 or what I do for a day job and making sure they're set up to use their college, you know, benefits – this is how I deal with my own, I guess, trauma. I had uh, decades of mental health issues undiagnosed. My diagnosis was, ironically, very much in common for as different as we are. It was around 2005. Um, and ever since then, all I've endeavored to do is to shorten everyone else's journey to getting where I am by sharing those experiences. I have one last serious question, and I have okay. a fun question. Um, we didn't talk about this. Where are you, and when it comes to all things like therapy and medication, when it comes to helping the people that come to you or, or yourself? So I'm probably the worst example of hypocrisy. Um you know, I I haven't sought out a therapy to deal with some of my stuff. I, I'm the individual that buries himself in work, as we discussed before we came on the air. You know, it, it, you know, 
It, I, I can't remember what you said. The devil's... Oh, uh, an yeah. empty mind is the yes. devil's playground. Yeah, I call them Barryisms. They're from my dad <laughs> sitting in that tank. Um, you know, so I, I dedicate myself to work. But That's you, what I do. It, and, it works for you. Oh, oh sorry. Never try. I need to start the podcast with never trust me when I say I only have a few more questions. <laughs> what time do you have to run? I'm not going to keep you another hour. Oh, that, I, okay. I'm fine. When's the last time you thought of suicide? Uh, that has been a number of years. Good. Um, so the work works. Like not everyone. Yes. I tell people another one of my things is, I don't. I don't judge how you get to a better place. I don't like a whole lot of religious things because you can't pray it away. But if it works, it works. If you're in a better place, do it. I say, do whatever works. I wouldn't put peanut butter on your ears sitting in my living room with my dogs around. It's kind of silly. But if it works, it works. Right. And for you, work works. Yeah, I would say like once I, once Task Force 20 really started to become a thing and we started to figure out what it was and uh, how... It was impacting others, and we started to get the stories and you know the thank yous from the people that we helped. It gave me that sense of purpose, you know, like it gave me that piece that I was missing. Like you know, hey, I am doing something that other people are benefiting from, and you know, having that that mission and that sense of purpose, I think, is extremely important. Whether it being a paid job or what a veteran does as a hobby. Having that something that gets you up every day um, and gets you excited to go forward. And other things can be medicinal. My There are times that I did not go through with any of my fantastical thoughts because I don't want to leave my dog laying around eating his own shit for two weeks. My dog kept me alive. Um, do uh, the guys that you're with, you not... So I would guess you're still pro-therapy. It's just not something you need, Right. Well, I probably need it. Need, I just don't we all do need it. it. Um, so, would you do you suggest it to, to guys or girls that that come to you? Yeah, we we have a couple of board members that are actively, you know, going to therapy, and you know, I fully recommend it. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, the, the worst. Of it, but you're you know, not oh, hypocrisy. But that's why I asked you the um, suicide question. A couple of years is 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 good. Like that's yeah. recovery. Um, what about medication? Any anybody that you work with dabble with that or? Yeah, I mean, I've met veterans that you know have used you know psilocybin or you know mushrooms, and I've got you know veteran friends that. Yeah, smoke a lot of weed. You know, how about every, prescribed by doctors? Not that I'm against that um, stuff. <laughs> I, I do know veterans that are working with like the VA, because um, obviously, being federal level, they can't prescribe some of this stuff, right? Um, but you know, for me, I I just work, man. Sure, that, that's 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 sure. what I do, and work myself to exhaustion, and I do have to take sleep aid uh, because I've had trouble sleeping since I've. 2005 when I got out uh, but other than that is yeah, it the, really. like the Lunesta kind or something over I take the over the counter stuff cause, yeah I take generic z um, yeah you know yeah. and not the actual z but yeah. generic I, I take the, the basically Benadryl stuff um, because my my two medications Cymbalta and Wellbutrin Cymbalta literally saved my life um it kind of pops me up, so to offset that, I need the sleep aid to, to get me to sleep, but it's not the the addictive kind. But sometimes right. I will take it just because I want to knock myself out for the day, and I want to take a nap right. or something. This is the last, last question, unless it leads somewhere else. What do you do for fun? And you can't say working out or work. <laughs> wow. I know, that's the toughest question I've asked you, right? Um, Video games, TV shows, restaurants, favorite restaurant. 
You can't see Metro Parks or the Art Museum. I outlaw those answers because they're everybody's. So I actually, um, for a long time, was very patternistic and regimented in how I did everything. And, you know, like if I went to a restaurant, it was a restaurant that I went to before. And if I liked what I ordered, I got the exact same thing. Like I was very predictable in how I lived my life. And I had an ex who, you know, positively impacted me (laughs) in this way that she wasn't going to put up with that. She was very focused on just experiencing life and, you know, wanted to do all these things. And at first it was kind of difficult for me, but getting, breaking me out of that pattern, I, I have come to really enjoy doing new things. And so now when I'm with people and, or like if I'm in a new relationship I find that they've done so much more than me because I spent years just doing the same things over and over. So what I do for fun is things I've never done before. That's awesome. Um, What's the last thing you did that maybe you were, and I'm exactly like you, like I better do it. You better get me to do it before I get home because as soon as my gym shorts come off to like home shorts, that's it. I'm not leaving the house. I'm very regimented. I, I get it. And also I'm a big time introvert. So I envy this about you. My therapist would say, you should do what Jason does. Next time somebody <laughs> invites you to something, you cannot say no. What's the last thing you were like, I don't know, but you went and you enjoyed um, the heck out of it. Well, probably the biggest thing is I uh, went to Sydney, Australia. Right. Um, that That was kind of huge. Because I had never been out of the country other than Iraq. Right. So, you know, going on that, I had never traveled or anything. Um, you know, went last summer, maybe, to a, a park, not like a, you know, slides and swings park, but um, I don't know. We got like- One of our metro with, parks? Well, it, it wasn't in the Toledo area. Got um, Did hiking and, and that kind of stuff. So that was kind of fun. Anything, but. anything besides Sydney, like maybe another activity that was like way out of your comfort zone, and maybe the hiking was it. Although I would think hiking is actually would, would be quite enjoyable for you. Man, that's a that's a tough one. Okay, because like it's probably been a while because okay. the, the organization has really blown up. Like good in a um, good way. Yes, yes. Let <laughs> me bad pun backtrack. I, like, I yes, I, I do a lot of things in the disability community, and I always uh, I work with the Ability Center. If they can be of help to vets, please uh, please let me know. That's one of the things I'm, I'm still kind of new there. I haven't talked much vet stuff with them, um, but I, I always like uh, a friend who might be blind. I'm like, I'll see you later. I'm like, oh shit, or um, you know, my friend who might be in a wheelchair or is. Uh, I hope I run into you later. Run on over. I'm like, oh shit. But there are these things that are just right. unfortunately part of our vernacular. But, and especially the vets, I, I bet they laugh at it when it happens. I, I don't think you're offending them very uh, often. But I don't want to speak for them. Maybe they right. hate you. And Everybody's a little... De- I don't so. know. A lot of people hate me. It's pro- probably vets least of all. But no, that is that is my sense of humor. And I never intend to offend anyone. If you... if. If I intend, the person should know. If not, I'm not doing a good enough job to offend right. you. But, um, yeah, my, one of my defense mechanisms is, is humor as well. So um, I get that. Thank you so much for the visit. Anything else you want to add? This is everything that I had hoped it would be. And good luck with everything with Task Force. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, hopefully, you know, there's individuals out there, you know, veterans and civilians that 
take something away from this conversation. They will. Um, I assure you. You know, our organization is, is here to help. Um, if you want to learn more, please feel free to reach out. We do have a contact us on the website. Uh, we are happy to work with any veterans organizations because, like I said, you know, we recognize not everybody is going to be, you know, cured. I don't think anybody gets cured. But, you know, lifting weights might not be the appropriate avenue. So we try to work with all of the other veteran-centric entities that are out there so that we can, you know, provide information uh, to those who need it, even if it's not us. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Is, ta- is Task Force centered anywhere? Is there a specific gym that you guys all meet up at or girls everybody meets up at? or? Uh, not really. We okay. are located in Northwest Ohio, um, but, you know, we're set up to where we can help veterans anywhere. And we recently, in January, started working. So the VA has a program called MOVE. It's the VA's MOVE program. It provides a lot of nutritional assistance and information. And a lot of the veterans that go through that program are awaiting bariatric surgery or, the you know, the shrinkage of the stomach. Mm-hmm. And so they can't perform that. It, the, the irony is you can't have that surgery if you're too overweight. Right. You know, you've got that sweet spot you have to be in. But the VA doesn't provide gym memberships. So the Ann Arbor VA recognized this and started working with us. So now not only are these veterans getting nutritional assistance, they're also getting free gym memberships, which gets them to their goals faster, which gets them to the surgery, which gets them healthier, faster. And uh, so we work with the Ann Arbor VA. We just started working with the Grand Rapids, Michigan VA. So um, we are expanding, and we think we're going to continue that expansion through the VA systems as more and more of them learn how we're helping those programs. You didn't mention the Toledo VA. Nothing nice to say about it. <laughs> well, so, no, I, I actually, I work in the uh, Toledo VA multiple They're days. They're over here, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Over on Detroit. I'm, I'm pointing at Detroit. And, yeah. um, so I say the Ann Arbor because these are VA systems. So Got they it. have multiple CBOCs. So the Toledo VA is a community-based outreach clinic mm-hmm. or outpatient clinic. Excuse me. Um, it's not a full-on VA hospital. Got it. So it falls under Ann Arbor. So, so... $10 Planet Fitness memberships that the VA can't afford, and that's what's keeping the country in debt, if I got that right, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment. 